Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. An article was published in the ERJ demonstrating that CBT for insomnia reduced the severity of obstructive sleep apnea. Here to tell us more is Dr. Alexander Sweetman. He is a program manager of a sleep disorders education and implementation program with the Australasian Sleep Association and has academic status at Flinders University. During his PhD, he coined the term COMISA, led a multi-site randomized control trial to understand the most effective treatment approach for COMISA, and contributed to the development of this new field of sleep medicine. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me to come on today and speak about the topic. So tell me about COMISA. What is this? What does that mean? Yeah, so broadly, it just means the comorbidity of both insomnia and sleep apnea in the same person. Um, So we coined the term in a review paper back in 2017 in Sleep Medicine Reviews. Um, There was a little bit of research into the comorbidity of insomnia and sleep apnea leading up to that time. But we think that coining the term COMESA really started to synthesize the field and bring it together into one cohesive field of research and clinical work. Well, how cool is that? Not many people can say that they've coined a phrase (laughs) that we use in in sleep medicine. It's pretty strange. So that was my (laughs) first ever peer-reviewed publication that was accepted. And for a very long time, it felt like me sitting in my little PhD office, thinking and writing about Comesa all by myself. And now it's so brilliant to see it becoming more widely recognized and accepted and sort of becoming its own subfield of sleep medicine almost. It's brilliant to see. I do love that about our field. You know, it is young, A, and B, I think people are receptive to these new ideas, you know, and are receptive to to something that may help explain a phenomenon that we haven't recognized previously, right? And And I think it all goes to serve our patients in the end. Yeah, for sure. It's been so brilliant to start collaborating more widely and internationally as well especially when it's quite a niche field to begin with when you find other people in the united states or uk or anywhere in the world really that are interested in this we sort of latch on to each other and get really excited to be working together and that we share the same passion so absolutely agree well and you're right i mean we met via twitter yeah that's right yeah So you're right. I mean, it's it, it's it's lovely to um, be able to reach out, you know, to to people who have this common interest and um, and really learn from one another. So tell me more about Comisa. What are some of the consequences of Comisa? Yeah. So people with both insomnia and sleep apnea. Um, it was actually first recognized back in 1973. But there was almost no subsequent research for about three or four decades in this field. Uh, And then two papers in pretty close succession in 1999 by Kenneth Lickstein and 2001 by Barry Krakow. 
they identified that about 40 to 50% of patients with insomnia also had comorbid sleep apnea. And then the inverse, about 50% of patients with sleep apnea also had insomnia symptoms. So that started drawing more attention to this comesa field. Um, a lot of the research into the consequences has been undertaken in sleep clinic settings um, because those sort of samples and populations are more readily available to sleep researchers, I suppose. Um, but pretty consistently, Comesa is associated with worse sleep, so both self-reported sleep and objective sleep parameters, worse daytime function, so fatigue, lethargy, irritability, reduced quality of life and productivity, um, worse symptoms and rates of depression and mental health disorders, and worse physical health um, compared to people with either insomnia alone or people with sleep apnea alone. So something unique about the comorbidity that's associated with greater morbidity than either condition alone. Well, that's really interesting. In a couple of recent papers, we've started looking at comesa in different population-based cohorts as well. Um, these are three US-based cohorts, the Wisconsin cohort study, pardon me, the Sleep Heart Health Study and the NHANES data. And we found that Comesa is also associated with about a 50 to 70% risk of increased mortality over time compared to people with neither condition. So um, the consequences are pretty diverse and not very good for people with Comesa compared to the other groups there. So you said that so casually. But am I hearing you say 50 to 70%? Yeah, that's correct. So I think there's about 4,000 to 8,000 participants in each of these population-based cohorts that we looked at. And the uh, hazard ratio was up around 50 to 70% across wow. the three cohorts um, and pretty robust across different definitions of insomnia and sleep apnea and controlling for all of the different types of covariates that you would expect, all of the um, socio-demographic chronic conditions and behavioural factors. So why do you think that is? Yeah, probably a combination of things, and it probably gets back to the greater morbidity across those different areas that I just spoke about. So people with comies are having worse sleep, um, reduced daytime function and quality of life, and increased risk of mental health and physical health conditions. So that might be one, these different mm. um, physical and mental health mediators. Another one, and one that I think is really important and that I'm really interested in, is that we don't yet have a really effective treatment pathway established for Comesa. So not only do these patients or people with Comesa have greater morbidity compared to those with either condition alone, but when we talk about treatment, they're actually a little bit less responsive or less likely to accept or use some of the first-line treatments compared to patients with either condition alone. So that might also contribute to the increased mortality risk in this group. Well, that's what I was wondering. Is, is this why perhaps PAP adherence might be lower in this group? And then will that explain some of the, the differences in morbidity and mortality? Yeah, potentially. I mean... That's a question we really need to look into mm. in the future. The, the PAP adherence thing is really interesting. Um, so we know that um, 
CPAP therapy is the recommended first-line treatment for moderate and severe sleep apnea alongside weight management advice. But pretty consistently in the literature, um, people with both sleep apnea and insomnia have lower rates of initial set acceptance of PAP therapy and lower rates of nightly use of PAP therapy compared to those with sleep apnea alone. So we think that these comorbid insomnia symptoms are probably creating a barrier to the acceptance mm-hmm. and nightly use of CPAP in this group. Well, I think I think that's exactly it, right? When in terms of what you're saying, I'm I'm thinking about my clinic patients and those patients who do have comisa and we start talking about CPAP, there's a lot of resistance (laughs) at first. You know, they say, well, I can't sleep already. How do you expect me to sleep with an air compressor on my head? Mm -hmm. And and it's a very valid Mm -hmm. point. How does that conversation go with you? Are you able to work around that or is that a real barrier that's hard to overcome? You know, it, it it's probably more challenging, I think, but then we have honest conversation around it. And and I've taken to talking about, you know, both disorders. And I think a lot of it is is from some of this data that's coming out about Comisa and your good work, you know, understanding and explaining to them that we have to address both of these. And perhaps we need to focus on treating the insomnia before we're ready to accept PAP therapy, but also work on PAP desensitization, mm-hmm. you know, in the afternoon and evening. And and I think we need to tackle all of it. It's, it's so very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a few potential ways that the mm-hmm. insomnia right might reduce acceptance and use of PAP. One might be that people with insomnia really value the sleep that they do get and mm-hmm are pretty sensitized to any potential threats to sleep. And like you say, introducing a pressurized CPAP mask, you can easily see how someone with insomnia would see that as a threat to their sleep if they've already Mm -hmm. got difficulties falling asleep or long awakenings through the night. Introducing the pressurized mask and asking them to fall asleep with this, they'll say, no, this will keep me awake (laughs) for longer. There's no chance. So that's one possibility. And like you say, there's a few different research groups around the world that have approached this and said, well, hey, why don't we treat the insomnia first? We've got a really effective treatment mm-hmm. for insomnia and CBTI. Um, why don't we try and use CBTI in this population of patients with Comesa, A, to see if it actually is effective and treats their insomnia, and then B, like you say, whether that has any carryover effect on improving their uptake and use of CPAP therapy. So tell me more about that. Tell me about the effect of CBTI in this group. Yeah, sure. So I think historically there's been some reluctance to administer CBTI in patients with Comesa and probably a few different reasons for that. One might be that the insomnia is more commonly viewed as a secondary symptom of the sleep apnea. So yes, these patients are having repetitive um, nocturnal closure or narrowing of the upper airway during sleep that causes arousals and awakenings from sleep, and that that might directly be contributing to insomnia symptoms. And B, regardless of whether it's a comorbid sleep disorder with insomnia or another physical or mental health disorder, these perceptions of secondary insomnia are just really pervasive throughout the medical system. So that might be one barrier. Um, to CBTI being used in this group. 
another potential barrier to using CBTI might be that um, sleep apnea has historically been viewed as a disorder that's characterized by excessive daytime sleepiness. And it doesn't really make sense that insomnia and sleep apnea would co-occur. If you think that most or all sleep apnea patients have excessive daytime sleepiness, it's a bit paradoxical that they would also have sleeplessness or insomnia at the same time. Um, one of the most effective components of CBTI is bedtime restriction therapy or sleep restriction therapy, which serves to um, gradually or temporarily reduce the time that someone spends in bed, increase the sleep pressure, and then start consolidating sleep periods throughout the night before time in bed is gradually extended from week to week again. One of the side effects or potentially um, a therapeutic mechanism of CBTI is a small increase in sleep pressure or increase in sleepiness during the first two to three weeks of treatment. So it's possible that some clinicians are reluctant to use CBTI in patients with comorbid sleep apnea because of the concern about this increase in sleepiness during the first couple of weeks of CBTI. So there's a few potential barriers going on there. Um, Anyway, several groups now have looked at the effect of CBTI in this population. Um, thankfully, CBTI is a really effective treatment for insomnia in the presence of all sorts of comorbidities, so comorbid mental and physical health conditions, and it's also effective in the presence of comorbid sleep apnea. Um, so this was one of the main, or a couple of main studies of my PhD was to recruit patients who had insomnia alone and comorbid insomnia and sleep apnea um, to treat these patients with CBTI and look at differences between groups. Also how responsive patients with comesa were to CBTI compared to control and then whether CBTI actually improved CPAP adherence. So when you talk about secondary insomnia, it really reminds me of this shift that we had in the way that we approached people who had anxiety or depression and insomnia, right? We used to always say, well, treat the mood and then the insomnia will resolve. But we've learned that treating the mood isn't enough and that you have to intentionally treat the insomnia. And so it sounds like we also need to understand how treating insomnia then modestly improved the AHI. So tell me more about this. Why do you think that happened? Yeah, so completely agree with you. And it's great to see a lot more consistent research coming out now showing that treating insomnia does have all of these carryover effects on improving depression, anxiety, and some other physical um, comorbidities as well, like chronic pain. Amazing to see. Um, we wanted to look at a similar sort of question in the Comesa population. So in my PhD study, we recruited 145 people with Comesa, so an AHI of at least 15 and psychologist diagnosed insomnia. We randomized those people to either a psychologist delivered CBTI program or no treatment control. And then we did a follow-up diagnostic PSG after six weeks. So none of these patients had started CPAP therapy yet. They were just randomized to CBTI or control. And uh, similar to CBTI, improving symptoms of depression, improving symptoms of anxiety, improving symptoms of pain and so on, 
We also wanted to look at whether CBTI could actually improve symptoms of untreated sleep apnea. So we looked at changes in the AHI from baseline to six-week follow-up between the two groups. Um, these were all home-based polysomnography studies. Because we know that sleep stage and sleep posture also re really have strong effects on AHI, we also examined and controlled for these postural and sleep stage mm -hmm. effects in our analyses. So we found that CBTI led to about a 15% improvement in AHI versus control. So that translated to about a 5.5 point reduction in AHI, and the control group showed about a two point increase in AHI, which was uh, statistically significant and of clinical importance, we think. But um, I'm not aware of any other research that's shown that treating the insomnia can actually improve sleep apnea as well. It would be brilliant to see other groups take this idea up and see some uh, replication studies out in the field. Well, for me, that was such a surprising um, outcome of the study. You know, when you would put this out on Twitter, I was so surprised to hear that CBTI helped reduce the AHI. Mm -hmm. And so it really makes me feel much more invigorated and motivated. Um, as you know, for, for us at least, CBTI is very difficult to access. So does this mean that we should redouble our efforts to, to help our patients get CBTI? Yeah, well, we think that we should redouble our efforts to improve access to CBTI, not only for Comesa, in which it's almost not accessible at all in Australia, but also for insomnia more generally. So improving access to CBTI is one of the main focuses of a large Commonwealth-funded program that I'm leading at the moment with the Australasian Sleep Association. Um, although we know that a lot of evidence-based guidelines around the world strongly recommend CBTI as the first-line treatment for insomnia, in Australia, I'm not sure about the US at the moment, but in Australia, only about 1% to 3% of people with chronic insomnia actually access CBTI. So despite hundreds of clinical trials and I think over 25 or even 30 meta-analyses now, the actual access rates to CBTI are still really dismal. So that's part of what we're doing with this Australasian Sleep Association program to train more clinicians um, educate the public and scope different digital CBTI programs and make them more accessible. So let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about Comisa and CBTI. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Your membership in the AASM demonstrates your commitment to advancing sleep care and enhancing sleep health to improve lives. Stay connected to the thousands of colleagues that share your passion for healthy sleep. Renew your membership today at aasm.org. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're talking with Dr. Sweetman about Comisa and CBTI. So I didn't realize that you had as significant an issue with um, access to CBTI as we do here. So it's not easy for you either. No, I think it's around the world. It's a common issue. There's all mm. of this evidence supporting CBTI, but really poor access rates. So talk to me a little bit about in-person CBTI versus uh, digital CBTI. 
Yeah, sure. So I guess historically CBTI has been delivered by trained clinicians like psychologists or behavioral sleep medicine experts. Um, but for the last decade or so, there's been more and more research coming out looking at the effectiveness of digital self-guided CBTI programs. Um, so we know that these digital CBTI programs are really effective treatment in people with insomnia and also insomnia comorbid with different mental health symptoms like depression and anxiety. One of the great bonuses or positives of digital CBTI is that these programs are immediately accessible, so it overcomes a waiting list to see a clinician and really readily scalable, so probably more cost effective on um, a really large scale um, population. When we're talking about Comesa, there's, I think there's a great potential to tailor and use different digital CBTI programs in this patient population with Comesa, um, but we don't actually have any published randomized control trial evidence on the effectiveness of digital CBTI in those with comorbid sleep apnea just yet. Mm. I understand that you had some um, a meta-analysis that was recently accepted. Tell me about that. Yeah, the timing was perfect for the call today. So just last night, <laughs> we found out that we had a meta-analysis just accepted in the Journal of Sleep Research, looking at the effect of different CBTI interventions in those with Comesa. So we reviewed the literature and we identified 14 independent studies of about 1,000 participants with Comesa. Nine of these studies were appropriate to meta-analyze, and we found that CBTI was associated with a large reduction in insomnia severity, and yeah, that this was the case for both studies that administered PAP therapy concurrently, and also in the studies that administered CBTI alone, where the patients weren't um, receiving treatment for sleep apnea. So really good to see that across the literature, CBTI results in large improvements in insomnia in this Comesa group. And so you're right, you know, CBTI is important for a lot of reasons. So how can we improve access to CBTI in, you know, sort of on a community level with primary care, with specialists? Is the answer always digital CBTI or what else can we do? No, I think you've sort of hit the nail on the head with the question. It's a multi-pronged approach that's required in my mind. So working with advocacy and community groups to increase recognition of insomnia and increase knowledge that CBTI exists, that this is really effective treatment and that there are CBTI options becoming much more readily accessible and available. So that's the community messaging part. Um, you mentioned primary care really important to work with primary care clinicians and different primary care specialist societies to increase education resources and so on about insomnia, CBTI and different assessment and treatment pathways, and then training about delivery of CBTI for different clinician groups, so GPs or family physicians, um, nurses, psychologists, and potentially other groups as well. Um, so this is one of the main aims of this Australasian Sleep Association program, and I'm lucky enough to be chairing the Psychologist Education Committee of the Sleep Association, 
Um, at the moment, we're partnering with the Australian Psychological Society, which is the main professional society for about 30, 35,000 psychologists in Australia oh, wow. to develop some CBTI education tools and manualized programs, really with a conceited effort to try and increase the availability of CBTI trained clinicians in the country. So I think a multi-pronged approach. And is digital the answer for everyone? Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> a really helpful entry step um, to the stepped care framework for insomnia, but not appropriate for everyone. There's some people with contraindications to manualized programs or manualized bedtime restriction therapy, especially that would require really close oversight from a clinician that can give more dynamic and adaptable treatment recommendations. You know, I was chatting with one of our colleagues at the Society of Behavioral Sleep Medicine and they have a lecture series geared towards primary care clinicians, and they're doing BBI instead of CBTI. And um, as one of our colleagues, Loretta Colvin, you know, she calls it uh, CBTI light. <laughs> and so yep, I yep. thought, well, what a wonderful way to at least do something, right, without necessarily having to have a psychologist or something like that, just in terms of access to care and providing that more timely intervention. Yeah, totally agree. Great to see BBTI and other different adaptations to CBTI, like the, the one-shot CBTI as well that mm -hmm. um, has received a few different studies. Great to see these distilled interventions being developed and implemented into other treatment settings. So I've been, I've been thinking about something you asked me earlier, mm -hmm. and you asked me about sort of the challenge, clinical challenge of really introducing CBTI to a patient or, or, or sleep um, CPAP to a patient that has Comisa. And so I'm wondering if you have any guidance on how we should manage expectations for our patients who have Comisa as they start on their treatment journey. Mm. Great question. Um, I don't have a concrete evidence-based answer, but some anecdotal bits and pieces for you. Um, so my feeling is that it's really helpful to start by treating the insomnia. If we don't, if we start with PAP therapy, a lot of the patients are likely to reject or immediately reject the idea of PAP therapy or discontinue PAP therapy over time. Whereas if we treat the insomnia first, we know that that's an effective treatment for the comorbid insomnia. And now there's research that shows that treating the insomnia first actually increases acceptance of PAP therapy and increases long-term use of PAP therapy by about one hour per night in our study. So that would be the treatment approach that I would recommend mm. at this stage. I'm really interested in the future in developing more personalized treatment pathways so that we can look at a patient's presenting symptoms or baseline symptoms, and we can identify with evidence whether they're more suitable for that pathway that I've just mentioned or whether they're more suitable to go straight to PAP. We don't we don't know that quite yet, the personalized stuff for Comesa. And therefore my feeling is that CBTI first is a good option. How do you manage expectations? I think talking about the um, expectation of a small increase in sleepiness, especially during the first couple of weeks of CBTI, 
Um, I think hedging that increase in sleepiness as a sign of therapeutic effect or therapeutic benefit that treatment's working can be really handy. So a small increase in sleepiness, especially in the late afternoon or evening, is a sign that someone's sleep pressure is gradually building and that will actually help them start falling asleep quicker and start returning to sleep quicker throughout the night. Um, another one about managing expectations is to talk about how long someone has had insomnia for, and it's commonly for several months or up to five, 10 years in a lot of people, and that we shouldn't expect these insomnia symptoms to abate instantly at the very start of treatment. So to um, set up expectations for really gradual improvement over the course of treatment. And yes, insomnia symptoms might come back in the future, but with the different components of CBTI, we're providing patients the tools to recognize insomnia relapse in the future and then self-apply different components to overcome it and manage it themselves. Finally, I think what you, oh, sorry, you go. Well, I was, I was going to say, I think you're right. I mean, there's so many different conversations to have with our patient and, and having that shared decision-making. You know, when you talked about how um, the CBTI will increase sleep pressure and sleepiness. Um, if you're if you're dealing with a professional truck driver, for example, then that's a really important conversation to have about safety and driving. And at what point do we introduce CPAP? Yeah, absolutely. And that's where the clinician discretion comes into play, mm -hmm. and probably where digital CBTI is not the answer for everyone. People that are drivers or pilots for work, my feeling is that um, treatment and over close oversight from a clinician is still really important. Um, and potentially those are some of the patients where PAP therapy might still be expedited um, if they are excessively sleepy as well. And what was the third point you were going to say? Um, I think you hit on it before in the conversations that you're having with your clients that providing education that these are two distinct sleep disorders and it's important to talk about and work through different treatment options for both disorders rather than just tackling it as sleep quality generally or only mm. focusing on the sleep apnea which yeah I think you hedged that perfectly um, earlier in the conversation. Well, I do kind of wonder if approaching it this way also helps our patients understand that we are hearing them. You know, when they say, I can't sleep, and we see that they have a certain amount of sleep apnea, right? We we want to treat the sleep apnea, <laughs> but I think yep, it also yep. serves us all well so that our patients understand that I'm, I'm hearing you, I'm listening. This is, we, we get that the insomnia is what bothers you the most. You know, you're... 90 minute 90 second apnea with desaturations to 50 probably bother me more <laughs> but mm -hmm, mm -hmm. let's let's see if we can address both of them and get you on the right track and i think a, a lot of that is that um spending the time to have that conversation with a patient and to say hey listen this is what this means and this is what this looks like and this is potentially how long it might take yeah wouldn't it be great to see those sorts of tailored treatment mm -hmm. options for both disorders across lots and lots of sleep clinics. So we think mm -hmm. that probably 40 up to 50% of people with sleep apnea report clinically significant insomnia symptoms. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of these patients, like you say, that's the 
presenting complaint. That's that's the most important part of their sleep that's bothering them. But the majority of sleep clinics in Australia and probably in the US, I'm not sure, still focus on the diagnosis and management of sleep apnea alone. So it would be really brilliant to see more services targeted toward the insomnia as well, and indeed other sleep disorders and an implementation program to offer different CBTI options to these 40 to 50% of patients. And and I think it, it helps with sort of the tapestry of our field too. It gives us a richer tapestry, right? We're not just OSA medicine. We mm-hmm. are all things sleep, right? And a significant portion of that is insomnia. And that can be very frustrating for patients. It's frustrating for clinicians, especially when we know that the data shows us that CBTI is what we should do, but it's just not feasible for a lot of us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're working hard to (laughs) develop more feasible and tailored treatments. So Alex, any final thoughts? Are there any other ongoing research or future research issues that you'd like to mention? Um, Yeah. I mean, there's always different research trials going on in the Comesa world. It's a brilliant group of collaborators around the world. And I've been really so lucky to have fantastic mentors and supervisors throughout my journey. Um, If there's any PhD students or early career researchers or clinicians listening with an interest in Comesa, please feel free to get in contact with me and I'm happy to pass on any of my expertise or any guidance or help where I can to pass that on, given that I've received so much support in my own early career. I love that. I love that. It's becoming a smaller world, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yep. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and providing such helpful insights into Comisa and CBTI. No, thank you so much for the call and the opportunity to have a chat about it. Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.